Welcome, everyone, to Gospel of Grace Fellowship. We'll open up with prayer and we'll begin. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for our day. We thank you for your mercies. They are new every morning. And we do ask that you would help us to understand the text in Proverbs 7. And we pray that you'd help us to understand what Bob is preaching in 1 Corinthians. And Lord, we pray that you would do these things for us so that we may live lives that are pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I want to just lay out the game plan that I'm going to be doing here in Sunday school. I've got 31 chapters of Proverbs to get through. So once I'm done with Proverbs, I'm going to be teaching the book of Zechariah. I'd like to do that verse by verse. And then from there, I'd like to teach the book of Daniel verse by verse. So those, that's kind of where I want to go. One thing I think that it's kind of an opportunity for us to really study the Old Testament in Sunday school and some of these minor prophet books that we often don't get a chance to look into. So that's what I would like to do in Sunday school. And Zechariah and Daniel, I think, are foundational. So we'll be getting into that. But today we're going to be looking at Proverbs 7. I'd like to be able to cover this whole chapter. I think we can get through it. Let's begin. I'm going to show you the outline. And again, many times you'll hear Bob and I talk about chiasms. Chiasms are inverted parallelisms where you have both a beginning and end that are synonymous and the middle is often that which is accentuated. Sometimes it's the ends that are accentuated. But here, let me show you the chiasm. Proverbs 7, 1 through 5, we have a father's appeal to keep away from the adulteress. That is advice to his son. So it's a father's advice or appeal to his son to stay away from the adulteress. The adulteress is the other woman. It would be any woman outside of his wife. So it's a prohibition And it's a way in which he can keep his son from engaging in sexual immorality. The Bible's very clear, despite what our culture says, that the only physical relations that are acceptable before God in the sexual realm are between one man and one woman within the confines of marriage. And so that's what this is designed to do. Uh, We get to Proverbs 7, 6 through 23, there's an example story. So here's where the father says, I saw a man who ends up being pillaged by this adulteress. And he gives a story on how it happens. And as you read this story, it'll resonate with you just as an American living in the culture that you live in because when it comes to male-female relations, in some sense, nothing has changed under the sun. Things are often the same as they were in the ancient Near East. Notice here in Proverbs 7, 24 through 27, we come back to the Father's appeal to keep away from the adulteress. And so that leads to this little chiasm. So with that, let's begin here with this father's appeal. Now, before I even put up the verses, I want you to remember that Solomon is often described or at least attributed as being the author. And I want you to think as he gives this wisdom to his son, this wisdom, because he's writing scripture, is also God's wisdom. It's the very wisdom not only of an earthly father, but of the heavenly father. Now, as we read this, he'll say, my son, keep my words. Assumed to be true is that this author is giving you the word of God. And why I say that is because if a father today would give some advice to a son or daughter that's not godly, that doesn't necessarily have to be followed especially if they command you to do something God forbids or they forbid you from doing something God commands. But assume to be true. Remember, Proverbs deals with assumptions of generalities. And so assume to be true is that an earthly father 
is going to be representing the word of God. That's what's assumed to be true in this passage. So let's read Proverbs 7, 1 through 5. It says, My son, keep my words and treasure my commandments within you. Keep my commandments and live in my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers, write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call understanding your intimate friend, that they may keep you from an adulteress, from the foreigner who flatters with her words. Now, dear ones, notice here, I'm going to get my pointer up. I want you to see, first of all, he says, my son, keep my words and treasure my commandments within you. The term keep there, shamar, literally means to watch over or to guard. And the idea is that the word of God, this is, of course, the word of the earthly father, which again is representing the words of the heavenly father, is to be preserved or guarded because it's so precious within the son's mind. In fact, notice in verse 2 when he says, keep my commandments and live, the godly advice that parents give their children, will, is so that they may live long in the land. They, every father and mother wants their children to live long in the land. Now, obviously, what we want even more than that is for our children to have everlasting life. Remember, there's always a bridge in the Old Testament between life now and life eternal. For those who trust in Yahweh and obey his commands, not only will they have long life now, generally, there's always exceptions, but they will also have eternal life. So it's not one or the other, it's both and. In fact, turn your Bibles, if you will, to Ephesians 6, 1 through 2. Ephesians 6, 1 through 2. Turn your Bibles to Ephesians 6, 1 through 2, and here we're going to see that this is also a new covenant command that, in fact, children would obey their parents. Notice what he says, Ephesians 6, 1 through 2. It says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. Then notice parenthetically, he says, which is the first commandment with a promise. Now, if you go back, and we won't turn to it, but I think most of you remember that from Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, this commandment is backed up with the promise of long life in the land. That's the point. And so earthly fathers and mothers want nothing but that which is good for their children, and the advice that they give them must be heeded. Otherwise, the child will not live long. Uh, Some years ago, I remember listening to Hugh Hewitt. Hugh Hewitt is a conservative commentator, and one day he was talking about a coming hurricane. And he was out on some coast, I don't know if it was the West Coast or the East Coast, but this hurricane that was coming, He's driving by, and it's just within hours of this hurricane arriving. You know how you have those huge surge in waves coming and hitting the coast? Well, he sees a bunch of teenage boys out swimming in this horrific wave activity, you know, almost drowning every time they get taken out by these huge waves. And he said, he never, he, I'll never forget what he said. He said, you know, teenage boys have a spe- special death wish. You know, un- un- unless they're restrained by the godliness of their parents or by the prohibitions of this world, they end up very easily killing themselves. And so that's something to keep in mind that, yes, the scriptures are always about giving us everlasting life, but they also give us life here and now. Now, I want you to see where he says, keep my commandments and live, and he says, and my teaching as the apple of your eye. 
Many of you know that this English idiom, the apple of your eye, means to protect something that is very precious. If you have a dog that's the apple of your eye, the dog is precious. If it's your son, your son is precious, or whatever you might say. That's an English idiom, but it backs up a Hebrew idiom. The Hebrew idiom is literally the ishon, which is the man of the eye. Now, what does it mean to keep or to guard the man of your eye? Well, it's the pupil. And remember, in the ancient Near East, these people had to deal with sandstorms. And in a sandstorm, if you lose your sight, you're dead. You will die wherever you are. You won't be able to see to make it. And so you had to protect the pupil of your eye, the little man, the ishon of your eye. And so the idea then is that the commandments that ultimately come from God are like this most precious pupil in our eye during a sandstorm that we have to protect. If we lose it, if we don't guard it, we're done. That's the power of this idiom. And so again, we kind of Americanize it into guarding or keeping the apple of your eye, but it really literally has to do with the pupil of the eye in a sandstorm. I think that that's probably where it ultimately came from. Now, notice here in verse 3, he says, bind them on, on your fingers, write them on the tablet of your heart. Now, writing them on the tablet of your heart is important because it means these commands have to be internalized. If they're internalized, they end up being part of your life. Now, remember, the heart, the Jews knew that the heart was the organ that pumped blood, but they used it metaphorically, oftentimes as we do, for the center of the thought life. So when we're talking about the heart in this way, we're talking about the center of one's thought life, which has to do with the will, the emotions, certainly, but also the intellect. It's all three. And so for the Hebrew, they all came together in the heart, the center of one's thought life. So literally, you could say it this way, bind them on your fingers, write them on the tablet of your thought life. That's the way we should be thinking about it. So, in other words, this has to be internalized. Why? If the commands of the scriptures are not internalized upon our heart, they're merely done and wrote. So they're either going to be, it's either or. They're either going to be internalized in the center of our thought life, or they're going to be done in a rote and vain way. If they're done in a rote and vain way, they will do you no good. Let me give you some examples of that. Let me show you where following God's commands in a rote way will do you no good. Turn your Bibles to Isaiah 29, 13. Turn your Bibles to Isaiah 29, 13. And the reason you want to see this passage is because Jesus borrows from it in Mark 7. And in fact, we'll look at both passages. Isaiah 29, 13. This is a rebuke of the people of Judah because what they did is they would live like the pagan idolaters around them, and then they would give, if I could be a little facetious, they would put the goat in the offering plate in a rote way. All the while, their heart was far from God, thinking, hey, I did my part. I put the goat in the offering plate. I did my sacrifice. I'm good to go. And the Lord says, no, that'll never justify you. Notice in Isaiah 29, 13, he says, then the Lord said, because this people draw near with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. 
Notice it wasn't genuine faith in which they obeyed out of gratitude and the faith that came from within, but they merely did the sacrifices in a way to appease a God that they really didn't trust in. So it would be like someone who has nothing to do with Christianity. They live for Satan all the days of their life, but Christmas and Easter, they pop in to give the obligatory uh, religious fervor to God, and they think that that's going to be good enough. It's very similar to that. Or the person who says, you know, I live like the devil all the days of the week, but on Sunday I do the Lord's Supper. Or I live like the devil, but I was baptized 28 years ago. Or I went forward at a Billy Graham crusade 26 years ago, but I have had nothing to do with the doctrines of Christ ever since. All of those are ways that we can just live in rote. In fact, let me show you another example. Let's turn to Mark. This is Jesus borrowing from this and, again, showing that living in a rote way will not lead to life. Turn to Mark 7, verses 5 through 7. Again, Mark 7, verses 5 through 7. As you turn there, I want you to remember the issue was Jesus' disciples did not wash their hands. Now, why didn't they wash their hands? Because they weren't commanded to in the Old Testament. The only people that had to do ceremonial washings were the priests in service in the temple. The average citizen was not called by God to do ceremonial washings. And so here the Pharisees, the irony is they're rejecting the Messiah in which they will have salvation, in whom they will have the forgiveness of sins, but they're the ones who are dedicated to washing their hands. So they're living a rote way, in a rote way. They're not trusting in the Messiah. They're just going to wash their hands and say, hey, God, you have to accept that, even though he never commanded them. And so notice how Jesus reacts to it. Mark 7, 5 through 7, the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? Again, stop there. Were they ever commanded under the old covenant to wash before they eat? No. So notice they even admit this is the tradition of the elders. Well, <laughs> there's a lot of traditions that aren't from the Lord. We have to know that. And so verse 6, it says, And he said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. Now here comes Isaiah twenty nine thirteen that we just read. As it is written, the people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. So again, he's pointing out that those who don't have genuine faith and therefore act upon that faith from inside, they don't really belong. They're not going to be those who are ever pleasing to God because they're doing their religious deeds merely in a rote way. In fact, skip down. Just going through the motions. Just going through the motions is a good way of putting it. That's excellent, Larry. Yes, exactly. Yes, Rich. Yeah, you hit it. You hit an operative word there, yeah. gratitude. I think that's really it. That just nails it because the religion I grew up with, well, what you said is that um, you accept Christ or you make a commitment to Christ and then you work to, you know, keep in God's grace by doing this, that, or the other thing. Yes. But gratitude is understanding my deep and wicked sin and my inability and what Christ done for me and the gratitude and the gratitude. Yeah. It's humbling. It's very humbling, the repentance part. 
but the knowledge of what Christ has done for you in the gratitude. I think you nailed it with gratitude. Yeah. That's what Amen. really speaks volumes to me because then you know you got a relationship with Christ Amen. when it's vertical and it's like, wow, you saved me from my sin, a wicked sinner as I am. Amen. You know. Well said. Yes, Richard, exactly right. So the gratitude of the believer leads them to do the things that Christ commands, not in order to earn, but out of the gratitude for what Christ has done. And now that doesn't mean we don't have obligations. And sometimes we don't feel like doing certain things, but we do it not to earn salvation, but because we follow the one who earned it for us. And that's the difference. Yes, Bob. Um, I want to make sure this mic's working before I go to yeah. Diane. <laughs> Thank but you. I, I do think uh, it would be appropriate to think also about in Romans where it says, well, the heart man believes. Yes. The mouth would confess. Yes. The mistake a lot of people make is that if you get the words right, that's all you need. Right. Okay, so that goes several different ways depending on what group. Yeah. Now, if you're looking at the word of faith, they say the words create the reality. Right. You say the words and believe in your words, <laughs> then you have whatever you sayeth. Yes. Quoting from the King James. But then in the liturgical, the assumption is get the words all down in our liturgy yeah. and have enough traditions and uh, social pressure to get everybody in the church whether they want to be there or not. Right. And when they're saying the words, then that somehow makes them Christian. Yeah. Because we utter it in our liturgy. Yeah. But what the Bible says is the heart belief comes first. Yes. And the words are an expression of faith in Christ that's real. Amen. Is that exactly right? I think you're exactly right, Bob. With yeah. the Romans 10, 9 through 10 really explicitly shows that where if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, and by the way, his lordship, again, is a synecdoche, a summary of all that he is and he's done. And if we believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, we will be saved. Well, the resurrection is, again, as a summary of all that he's done. So the idea is that our confession, again, shows the inward possession. We confess because we believe. That's the idea. And so you're exactly right. The confession, the profession of the words, just shows the inward reality of faith. And yeah. one more example of words that don't really um, do what you would think yeah. is the um, message of the false prophets under the Old Covenant. Right. Their message was peace, peace. When there is no peace. Yes. And the word peace in the Old Testament, shalom, would indicate salvation, well-being, yeah. prosperity, a lot of good things. Yep. But if it's not there, it's just empty sayings. Exactly right. You know, Bob, I'm glad you brought up the Word of Faith movement because the Word of Faith movement, they do believe that as you speak words, that changes reality. And it's almost as if they put a metaphysical um, substance behind the words that you say. Yep. Well, what's very interesting, in some sense, we have that in our culture with modern-day Marxism as well because they, they narrative build. So they build narratives that are really not connected to reality. So let me give you an example. They'll say, well, a certain policy like the healthcare system years and years ago in 2010, Obamacare, it's going to be wonderful. It's going to be the greatest ever. In reality, everything gets worse when the government intervenes. But if you say it long enough, it becomes true. That's the idea. They narrative built. How many of you here have heard you're going to be on the wrong side of history? 
you hear that all the time. Well, history has no being. And what they're really saying is those who control the narrative years from now, who have the same distorted view of reality as we do, they're going to judge you harshly. Well, I'm not worried about that. I'm worried about what God thinks. So my point is you can have, let's say none of you, or none of us in here believe, I'm included, that the earth rotates around the sun. Does that make it true? Well, that's the narrative we built, but it's disconnected from reality. And so Bob's absolutely right. Words in and of themselves do not have metaphysical property. The words reflect what we actually believe. That's the point that we see in the scriptures. Yes, Eric. Absolutely no problem. Yeah, actually, this is a statement and a question kind of combined. Yeah. Um, I'm, you know, I'm not real big on some of the terms like word of faith movement. I think I know what these things mean, you know. Yeah. But I know people as a, I've had clients as a CPA, uh, and there are people who believe that because they are Christians, that every thought that they, that they come up with, that God is with them, so right. to speak. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and I've seen just disastrous things happen where people yeah. will, will say, okay, we think that you know, God told me to do this because they had some sort of a, and, and really it's an area of Christian liberty. Yes. I was just in a conversation just last week, actually, with a guy who's a former pastor. And he and a partner of his were thinking about taking a highly risky uh, endeavor, venture. They were going to fast and pray about it, you know, yeah. all weekend. And I, I said to him, well, you know, you have Christian liberty on this. Right. You know, in other words, and, and so, you know, you want God. And I, I think that when we're in the uh, millennial kingdom and in the eternity future, we'll be so glad that yeah. God will just tell us what to do. But yeah. <laughs> we have that freedom. And not every instinct that a Christian has is good because we're still in our, in our flesh, right. partially. Right. Amen. Right? Well okay. said. Yeah, absolutely, Eric. It reminds me of the story that R.C. Sproul told where someone came to him and said, well, the Lord was telling R.C. from this person. So the person says, R.C., the Lord was telling me you should live in such and such a city. And I think it was like Pittsburgh. And then someone else came to him and said that the Lord was telling them he should live in Fort Lauderdale. And he said, well, apparently on that day, the Lord was confused. And uh, the point being is we can ascribe God to our words, but they're really just our words and our ideas. Bob had a godly professor who said in seminary, the best we can claim as Christians is a sanctified idea. So unless it's revealed in the scriptures, let's say I say, hey, you know what? I really have a desire to buy this car. Well, does it say, thus saith the Lord, you shall only buy Fords or Chevys? And the, well, no, you have Christian liberty. Does the Bible tell you what kind of toothpaste you should use? Do you have to pray before that? No, that's an area of Christian liberty. But if you say, you know, I'm really sick of my wife. I think I'm going to go for a new model somewhere else. The, the Bible has something to say about that. That's an area where you're bound to say, no, I'm sticking with the wife of my youth. That's, where, then that's what we're learning here today. So excellent point, Eric. Um, I want to just finish this Mark thought. Uh, go to Mark 7, 9, just a couple of verses down. And we'll just kind of go through some of the verses here in Mark. I just want you to see how important the faith is from the inside out. Mark 7, 9, notice it says, He, this is Jesus, was also saying to them, You are experts of setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. So notice what does rote living lead to? 
Well, if you're worshiping God in rote, in a rote way, you substitute human tradition and you get rid of God's word. Notice here Mark 7, 14 through 20. Skip down to there. Notice, let's finish this. It says, After he called the crowd to him again, he began to say to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him. But the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. So stop there. Notice Jesus saying, it does, you can't be ceremonially defiled by dirt on your hands. What defiles you is your thought life. The, the heart where the will, the emotions, and the intellect come together, that's what defiles the person. That's what the gospel came to change. It changes us from the inside out. So notice verse 16. He says, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. When he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples questioned him about the parable. And he said to them, Are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him? Because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach and is eliminated. Thus he declared, All foods clean. So stop there for just a moment. Here you have Mark under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit declaring to us here that Jesus declared all foods clean. If you're a new covenant Christian, that means you can eat pepperoni, you can eat all sorts of foods that are regarded as being non-kosher. Why? Because your Lord and Savior declared to you that you can. Okay, isn't that good? Well, then notice in verse 20, he was saying, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles him. What we see, dear ones, in the Bible is that saving faith changes us from the inside out. That's how we're going to be regenerated. So it's not through rote. It's not regeneration by doing rote procedures. And from the outside in, I just become a little better because I do, what is it, uh, Carl Jung? You do things, therefore you become that. I don't believe that. The Bible says you believe something and therefore you act on it. That's the scriptures. And so that's why Paul says in Romans 12 too, do not be conformed to the image of this world, but be transformed, literally metamorpho, you have a metamorphosis, by what? By the renewing of your mind. We're going to think differently, and therefore we're going to act differently. Yes, Brian. I can't uh, stop thinking about the Sabbath, where these broke procedures, Jesus was... Uh, healing people, uh, he was. Uh, they were gleaning uh, wheat out in the field, and yeah. the Pharisees and uh, they were they were trying to cap. They were trying to corner Jesus. Yeah. You know, why are you doing all these things? So they didn't care that somebody was healed on the Sabbath. They were trying to use the Sabbath as, as a tool to kind of oppress yes. the, the rest of the Jews. Absolutely. And Brian, what's interesting, we're going to be coming to that when we get to Matthew 12. Jesus makes an ingenious argument in Matthew 12. Jesus says, hey, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. What's the proof of that? Well, Jesus makes the analogy. He says, every Sabbath, the priests in the temple, they break the Sabbath. Why? Because they're working. The priests have to work on Sabbath. Now, why is it okay for the priests to work on Sabbath? Well, implied, their work of atonement for the people is more important than them taking the Sabbath off. Jesus reasons, am I not ultimately where the atonement comes from? 
So if Jesus, from whom the atonement actually comes, remember, the blood of bulls and goats could never provide atonement. We see that in, in the book of Hebrews. Okay, so Jesus says something greater than the temple is here. Therefore, those who are serving me, there is no Sabbath. Why? Because you have atonement. Sabbath rest is found in Jesus Christ. And that's one of the major points that we see in Hebrews. Why? Because Christianity is not a rote-based salvation. It never has been, never will be. In other words, in the Old Testament, it wasn't rote-based either. It's always been people who come to faith from the heart end up changing and living a different way. And so that's why this is so important, what Solomon is saying to his son, hey, take what I say to you and put it in your heart. Don't just do it in a rote way. Don't just give me lip service. Really live upon the words that I give you. In fact, notice he says to wisdom, this is what you're to say to wisdom. Wisdom that comes from God, comes from the scriptures, comes from your parents. You are to say you are my sister. Now that may be somewhat strange to us, but sister here is probably an idiom for the wife. Okay, now let me prove that to you. Turn to the book of Song of Solomon 5.1. Song of Solomon 5.1. Oftentimes a sister was an idiom for one's wife. In other words, you become so close, it's as if she's your sister as well. And um, I'll just cite this Song of Solomon 5.1. Here Solomon is saying, I have come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I have gathered my myrrh along with my balsam. I have eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I have drunk my wine, my milk, eat friends, drink and imbibe deeply, O lovers. So notice he calls his wife, what, his sister. Why am I laboring that? Notice he also says, call understanding, which is synonymous with wisdom, your intimate friend. The idea is that the wisdom that comes from God's word is to be like the wife and the intimate friend of the son so that he stays away from the adulteress. Let scripture be like your wife and your most intimate friend so that you stay away from the woman who will crush you in sin, the adulteress. In fact, notice you have the purpose statement right here. Here's the purpose statement. Oftentimes when you see in order that or that, there you have a purpose statement. What's the purpose statement of taking the wisdom of God and putting it in your heart taking the wisdom and making that you're like your wife and your best friend, that they may keep you from an adulteress. The adulteress is literally the other woman. And notice it says from the foreigner who flatters with her words. The foreigner here and the adulteress are literally the other woman. The other woman who is not your wife. That's the wisdom that Solomon is giving to his son. By the way, in the Greek Septuagint, remember the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The term there is for keep is tereo. And the preposition from, apo, keep from always means to be preserved on the outside. So in other words, the purpose of having God's word in your life is not that you lie with the adulteress and that God somehow preserves you through the relationship but that you never go to be with the adulteress. It's preservation on the outside. Now, I'm going to show you a summary slide, and I want you to conceptually put three verses together, even though they're not even in the same book. Sometimes it's important, I think, to think conceptually. The concept I want you to see in these three verses that all have the same verb, te keep, is the concept of preservation 
on the outside. It is taught all over the scriptures. Let me give you the example again. Proverbs 7, 5. What's the purpose of having the wisdom of God's word in your heart? Not in a rote way, but at the center of your thought life. What will keep you from an adulteress? Tereo apo. It keeps you from. You're preserved on the outside. Let me show you a passage in the New Testament. Here Jesus in John 17, he's going to use the same verb, tereo. And here in his high priestly prayer, remember, if a lot of people say, well, tell us the Lord's prayer. And they say, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Well, no, that's the Lord's model prayer. That's how you and I should pray. But here in the upper room discourse, Christ is praying for us. This is his prayer. He's praying to the Heavenly Father. He's interceding for us. And this is obviously a prayer that God is going to answer why he and the Father are one. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. Does everyone see the term keep? That's tereo. And here you have the, pres the preposition ek. Meaning true believers are going to be preserved on the outside of Satan's realm. The moment you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, you were deposited into the kingdom of the beloved son and Satan never touches you again. That's the idea. How do we know that? Because Colossians 1.13 says so. That we were deposited. Literally, it says this. It says, we know. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm actually citing 1 John here. Colossians 1.13. He delivered us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of what? The beloved son. That's the transfer. You went from one domain to another. One kingdom to another. Now, that's not spatial yet. It'll be spatial when we have the millennial kingdom, but it's not spatial yet. It's positional. The moment you believed in Jesus Christ, the moment you believed, you went from one domain to the other, and Satan never touches you again. You may sin, you may stumble, you may fall, but you will never be in Satan's kingdom again. Let's see evidence of that. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to 1 John 5, 18 through 19. And, oh, yes, Eric. Yeah, I just wanted to, um, to mention, you know, we've been, we've been studying about the work of the Holy Spirit, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and the sealing that we're, we're sealed by the Holy Spirit. Until the day of redemption, absolutely. Yeah, Ephesians 4.30, yes. And I think that that's a similar idea, isn't it? Absolutely. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you've been sealed until the day of redemption. And I could, absolutely. Tell, you, I could tell you of an experience that my wife and I had years ago. We were, yeah. not that, we were not that discerning. We were believers, but we were with some people, and we had never heard of some of this stuff, and they were having a little service and they were being slain with the spirit and on and oh, on. Yes. It was demonic. Yes. And, you know, Barb and I, we really, we just didn't get it. I mean, it just yeah. didn't touch us. And looking back, I'm thinking, I think that the Holy Spirit just protected us, you know? Does that make Amen. sense? Yeah. You know, uh, Eric, I've had the same experience when I was a brand new Christian. I was a flight instructor at Crystal Airport and the guy who saved me was in his upper 80s. He was a for former German Luftwaffe pilot. Well, he had dementia. So I couldn't understand how a genuine believer could sit in a Word of Faith church until I went to church with him and I realized he fell asleep. He never heard a word they said. But meanwhile, I, his 20-year-old companion, I'm in the church and they're bringing me to a separate room and they tell me to speak in tongues. And they say, this is a work of the Spirit. And I said, okay. Uh, they say, well, just keep saying, start saying something. Just gibberish, and it'll come out as if I had to manufacture it. 
Well, then they tried to have me slain in the spirit where they're going to push me down. And I'm like, well, this doesn't seem genuine if you're trying to push me down. So um, I had the same problem, absolutely. You're right, that's not a work of the spirit. A work of the spirit, we do know, is a confession of Christ, who he is, what he's done. We know that from John 15, 26. So that's a work of the spirit. But here, I want to uh, notice in 1 John 5, 18 through 19, he says, we know that no one who is born of God sins. Now stop there. By the way, people say, well, people who are born of God sin all the time. Let me tell you a little story. D.A. Carson tried to explain this passage. It's the best explanation I ever heard. Listen carefully. D.A. Carson grew up in England. His father was there during World War II. And so D.A. Carson is in a very strict uh, classroom, and this Englishman has a sign on the wall, there is no gum chewing. And as D.A. Carson tells the story, he, he says, I thought it very ironic that as I was reading the sign, there is no gum chewing allowed, he was chewing gum. His point in saying that is, the, when it says in 1 John 5.18 that no, none of us who are born of God sins, it doesn't mean that at any particular time that one of us isn't sinning. It means it's not tolerated in the church of God. You know, the, 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 the man who had the sign up, the teacher in D.A. Carson's classroom, went up to him and said, give me your gum. It wasn't that D.A. Carson wasn't chewing the gum. It's that it wasn't tolerated. Do you remember Bill O'Reilly had the no spin zone? The church is the no sin zone. You may be sinning, I may be sinning, but it's not tolerated. And we are always going to be those who say, I can't do that. And you repent, and you turn from it, and you get back on the path of salvation. That's what he's pointing out, is that we don't live in that. But notice he says, but he who was born of God keeps him. The one who was born of God there is Jesus, so Jesus keeps him. And notice what it says, the evil one does not touch him. It does not touch him. Why? Because Jesus had asked the Father that we'd be kept from the evil one. Even if you falter, you're kept forever in the kingdom of God, never to be touched by the kingdom of Satan again. In fact, notice verse 19 of 1 John. He says, we know that we are of God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So go back to Colossians 1.13. What does it say we had a domain transfer? The moment we believed he delivered us from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of the beloved son. The world who has not been regenerated, who's not believed in Jesus, they're still in the kingdom of darkness. So that's the point. So when he says, keep them from the evil one, realize this is preservation on the outside. The imagery in the New Testament is not that, well, I'm a Christian and I'm in Christ's kingdom and therefore I'm being preserved from Satan, but I sinned the other day and I must have gone back into Satan's kingdom. Well, then I repented and I went back to Jesus' kingdom. Well, then I faltered again. I went back to Satan's kingdom. Well, then I repented. I went back to Jesus' kingdom. That's not it. That's not the conception. The conception is you are preserved on the outside, just like you are to be preserved on the outside of the adulterous relationship. Let me show you the final example. Again, the concept is we are preserved on the outside. That is a concept that you want to see from Tereo. Kept, kept, kept. Here's Revelation 3.10. This is Jesus' words to the church at Philadelphia, but by extension, all Christians. He says, because you have kept... Here's a play on kaptereo. In other words, you've guarded or kept the word of my perseverance. That's the scripture, meaning you're a genuine believer. 
I also will keep tereo you from the hour of testing. Now stop there. What is the hour of testing? Well, that's the 70th week of Daniel. How do we know that? Some say, well, no, it was just a localized judgment that the Church of Philadelphia was going to encounter. Well, notice he says that hour which is about to come upon the whole world. So notice it's a universal judgment. Well, when does the universal judgment come upon the whole world? Well, that's the 70th week of Daniel. What's the purpose of this universal judgment that comes upon the whole world? Notice you have a purpose statement to test those who dwell on the earth. That phrase, those who dwell on the earth, I believe occurs, I always forget, it's either 9 or 11 times. But every time it's used in the book of Revelation, the 9 or 11, I can never remember which, it's always referring to the unbeliever. So what's the purpose of the hour of testing? It's to test the unbeliever. Notice we're going to be preserved on the outside. Are we, preserved? Are we to be preserved on the outside of the adulteress? Or are we to lie with her and then God will just preserve us through? No, we're to be kept from her. Are we going to be kept from the evil one? Or do we go back and forth every time we sin and repent? No, we're preserved on the outside. Are we going to be kept from the hour of testing? Or as Robert Gundry, the famous post-tribulationalist, tried to claim, are we going to be brought through only to be taken out at the end? No, we're going to be preserved on the outside. Over and over, you see the preservation on the outside. These are three passages I want you to conceptually put together. The Bible is telling us in Proverbs that if we keep the word of God, we will be those who are preserved on the outside of the illicit relationship. That's the goal of the word of God. Not that you lie with the adulteress and that you're simply preserved through it. Okay, so let's keep going. Proverbs 7, 6 through 9. Solomon here furnishes the example of the young, naive man who falls for the adulteress. So again, verses 1 through 5 that we just read is the warning of the father. Now from verses 6 through 23, we come to the example that Solomon sees from his own home. Notice he says, For at the window of my house I looked through my lattice, and I saw among the naive and discerned among the youths a young man lacking sense, passing through the street near her corner, and he takes the way to her house in the twilight, in the evening, in the middle of the night, and in the darkness. Now notice in the very beginning we have a preposition. It's actually a conjunction. It's key. Key is rendered for. And what that is is it's Solomon saying, hey, let me give you an example of what I've just said. You, you know, son, you think I'm blowing smoke here. Let me tell you a story. I've seen this firsthand. That's what he's telling us. He says, for at the window of my house, I looked out through the lattice, and what did he see? He saw the naive, the one who was a youth, who fell for the adulteress. In fact, notice here in verses 6 through 8, he talks about the adulteress. In fact, notice he says, I saw among the naive and discerned among the youths a young man lacking sense passing through the street corner near her corner. The adulteress here is likened to a dangerous animal or a criminal. It's as if I, I saw this young man and he was really getting close to that snake or getting close to that lion. That's the way he's treating her. That's how dangerous this is. And I think that's important because in the Bible, the ultimate danger is that which is spiritual. That you and I would become those who go after the adulteress or the immoral man or woman. 
And in America, the issue is always physical. Men and women don't care what their sons or daughters do. As long as they don't take drugs or get killed in a drunk driving crash, they're good to go. But that's not the way it is in the Bible. Notice the threat that Solomon sees. This man is going to succumb to the adulteress. That's a serious threat. That's what he's saying. He is, it's like you see a child who's about to be taken by a mugger. That's how serious a threat this man sees it as. Okay, now notice the time in verse 9. He says it's in the twilight, in the evening, in the middle of the night, and in the darkness. The twilight there, the, the term actually is the pupil of the night. And what it probably has to do with is that time period where it's so dark, and it's, it's after midnight, and you can start seeing even the morning star. So this is the time period where nothing good happens. And that's what the father's warning is. When the time period where nothing good happens, this man's finding the adulteress. The immoral do their deeds, dear ones, often at night. In fact, turn your Bibles to John 3. I want you to connect this idea of the night. I think John does this with Nicodemus coming to Jesus at night. And I want to show you that oftentimes evil deeds in the book of John are done at night. John 3, 1 through 2. John 3, 1 through 2. Notice it says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Why does Nicodemus come at night? I believe it's because he doesn't want to be seen with Jesus. And so he's dressing up his unbelief by the cloak of darkness to go say, you know, I'm really embarrassed. I don't really want to be seen with this man, but I'm going to go ask him these questions that I have to get resolution to. In fact, listen to D.A. Carson. He says, why Nicodemus came to Jesus at night is uncertain. Then he gives various views. He says this, he says, some have thought this reference to night is nothing more than personal reminiscence of a historical detail. That could be. Others remind us that the text is demonstrating that rabbis studied and debated long into the night. Still others speculate that Nicodemus came to Jesus at night in order to benefit from the cloak of darkness, this would be my view, fearing to be identified in the public mind with the Galilean teacher and wonder worker. The best clue lies in John's use of night elsewhere. In each instance, John 3.2, John 9.4, John 11.10, John 13.30, the word is either used metaphorically for moral and spiritual darkness or it refers to the nighttime hours. It bears the same moral and spiritual symbolism. Doubtless Nicodemus approached Jesus at night, but his own night was blacker than he knew. So in other words, I think Nick, what D.A. Carson is pointing out is this man really wanted to cloak his coming to Jesus because of his unbelief. He didn't want others to see it. Why? Because he loved his position of power and authority, at least at that time, more than he did Christ. I think that may have changed. But that's the way it was when he comes. Dear ones, the point is, nothing good comes at night. Nothing good. How many times did you hear from your own parents, nothing good comes after midnight in a bar? I heard that from my dad. My dad says, you want to be a loser, hang out at a bar after midnight. You'll be the loser every time. And you know what? It's godly wisdom, isn't it? And that's exactly what he's saying here. He's saying, don't, don't follow after this harlot, this adulterer, or adulteress, rather, at the night. Um, I'm sorry, yeah, Brian, go ahead. 
many times we read about going from darkness to light. Yes. And darkness, bad, light, good. Yes. I was wondering, in your opinion, do you think there's any correlation between that and in the book of Genesis where we the days are yeah. in the morning, uh, you know, from sun, sunset to sunrise? So night, bad, and then we have the day, new day. Yeah, absolutely. So he overcomes the darkness by the light and the light, the creation is very significant in that the light dispels the darkness. Um, you know, oftentimes it's said that evil is just a deprivation of what should be. And the idea is if you don't have light, you have by default darkness. So the fact that there's light shows God's intervening into, into the creation. Why? Because the default is darkness. Why do you and I see light? Well, because God created that there. And so he overcomes. In fact, turn your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 5, 4 through 6. I'm going to show you the symbology of night and day and how when you and I come to faith, we're people of the day. 1 Thessalonians 5, 4 through 6. And again, what I'm saying in Proverbs, I don't want to press this too far. His point is oftentimes the disastrous deeds done by the immoral, they're done at night. Why? Because they think they can hide their immoral behavior from the rest of the world but yet it still brings destruction. 1 Thessalonians 5, 4 through 6, notice Paul says, but you brethren are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. Stop there for just a moment. The fact that we're not in darkness does not mean we know when Jesus is coming. It's that we believe that Jesus is coming. Why? Because Jesus says no one knows. No one knows the day or the hour. So I don't know any more when Jesus is coming than anyone else, even as a believer, because it's not revealed. But what I do know and believe is that he is coming. Therefore, what? I live differently. That's the point. So notice the day won't overtake me like a thief because I know when it's coming. No, because I believe that it's coming. So whenever it comes, if it should come tonight, I'm not gonna, it's not going to overtake me like a thief. Why? Because I'm in Christ. I'm in Christ. And because I'm in Christ and I really believe, I'm going to really act on it. If you don't act on it, it means you don't really believe it. And therefore, you're not of the day or of the night. That's the point. So notice in verse 5, he says, For you are all sons of light, he's talking to believers, and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. Does everyone see the term alert there in verse 6? The term there, greg areo, is used in the Olivet Discourse by Jesus in Matthew 24 for us to be on the alert. We don't know when he's coming, but whenever he does come, we want to be those who are found in the faith. So if you're going to summarize what Greg Areo means to be on the alert, it means to be found in the faith. It means to really believe and act on that belief. Because if you don't act on it, you don't really believe. You confess with your mouth, Jesus, Lord. Why do I confess it? Because I really believed in my heart that God has raised him from the dead. The reason why I really love my neighbor as myself is because I really believe in Jesus Christ. The reason I don't lie with the adulteress is because I really believe Jesus Christ. I really believe that the best is yet to come. I really believe that there's a kingdom and a millennial kingdom where I'm going to be given a resurrected body and live forever. And I really believe that this is the one, Jesus Christ, who can send me to hell where I, in fact, will incur eternal torment forevermore. I really believe it. And therefore, I act on it. That's how you are alert. 
those who are not alert, they don't really believe, they don't really obey. So whenever Jesus comes, it's going to overcome them like a thief in the night. That's the idea. Everything that this man does that Solomon is using as an example happens at night because it reflects really metaphorically the spiritual disaster of darkness. Okay, now notice here 10 through 15, the adulterous woman's description. He says, and behold, a woman comes to meet him dressed as a harlot and cunning of heart. She is boisterous and rebellious. Her feet do not remain at home. She is now in the streets, now in the squares and lurks by every corner. So she seizes him and kisses him. And with a brazen face, she says to him, I was due to offer peace offerings today. Excuse me. I was due to offer peace offerings today. I have paid my vows. Therefore, I have come out to meet you. Oh, seek your presence earnestly, and I have found you. Now, notice here at first, it says that this woman comes out and she's dressed as a harlot and she's cunning of heart. The term harlot here, zona, means that she has a harlot-like heart. And the idea of her harlot-like heart is that she's not faithful to God's confines of sexuality, one man, one woman. She's broken out of that. She's a boundary crosser. No different than the angels who went from their abode and went after humankind. No different than Sodom and Gomorrah who broke boundaries. You can read about that in Jude 6 or 7. So she's a boundary crosser. She's cunning of heart. What does it mean to be cunning of heart? It means not only is she one who rebels, she looks for ways to do so. She's cunning about it. Now, notice in verse 11, the adulteress is also boisterous and rebellious. She speaks the things that are upon her mind, and she rebels openly against the commands of God. Notice it says her feet do not remain at home. Why doesn't she remain at home? Because she's not content. So God has given her, this adulteress, a husband, but she's not content with him. She has no gratitude for what God has given. Therefore, she doesn't remain at home. She's going to be now where? In the streets, the squares, lurking at the corner. If she was godly, then she would be content. Even maybe her husband doesn't spend enough time with her, gives her enough attention. She'd still be grateful for what God has provided. A lack of gratitude often leads to sin. That's what we see. A lack of contentment, a lack of gratitude. The rebellious harlot has none of those things. In fact, turn your Bibles to Hebrews 12, 28. Hebrews 12, 28. I just want to show you how important gratitude is and how it does keep us, as Rich was saying, from rebelling against Christ. If we have gratitude for what Christ has done for us, and meaning certainly through salvation, but also even physically as provision for us, we're not going to be those who rebel against him. Notice here, Hebrews 12, 28. It says, therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, that's the ultimate reward, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. Let us show gratitude. Why? Because we have all the promises. Those who don't have gratitude and contentment, they leave the boundaries that God has given them. She should have remained at home, but instead she's on the prowl. She's, notice, notice she didn't remain at home. She's now in the streets, the squares, and on every corner. Now, notice verse 13. She's like a 
prowling animal looking for the kill. She seizes him and kisses him. Notice it says, and with a brazen face, she says to him, I was due to offer peace offerings. Today I have paid my vows. Now, verse 14, there's a lot of debate about this. There's two ways of taking this. First of all, when it says that she's made a peace offering, what that could mean is, remember, according to Leviticus 7, verses 16 through 17, if you made a peace offering with meat, you gave some to Yahweh, but you kept the rest. And so many people believe that what she's saying is, look, I made this votive offering, this peace offering, where I gave meat to Yahweh, but I have a lot left. Therefore, I'm inviting you, young man or whomever, over to my house for a dinner. That's the idea. So she's trying to seduce him not only physically, but with his stomach as well, right? But there's probably a bender rendering. By the way, that rendering is rendered by the NIV. The NIV renders it this way. I have fellowship offerings at home. The problem with this, number one, it's a doubtful translation. Number two, she doesn't mention food. She mentions physical attraction. In fact, when you get to verse 20, I won't turn to it now, but her husband is gone away with the money bag. Why is that important? More than likely what she's saying is that she is going to be one who gives her votive offering, but she doesn't have enough money to do so. She just needs a little money. And so if this man would lie with her, he pays her. She gets enough money to do her votive offering. And therefore, she's going to do a godly thing. So this man would be helping her do her offerings after all. It's a spiritual enterprise if he would pay her and lie with her. That's what's actually going on. Now, what's interesting is not only then is she rebelling against God by having a man who's not her husband in sinning against her husband, but now she's going to be taking the money used from harlotry and putting it in, at least threatening, to put it in the temple of the Lord. Turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy 23, 17 through 18. Deuteronomy 23, 17 through 18 prohibits harlots or any prostitution money being used in the temple of the Lord. The reason I'm showing you this is I want you to see the full-orbed sinfulness that Solomon is depicting. So it just, it comes upon you in waves like, wow, this is some kind of wickedness. That's what, he's heaping the wickedness up so that the person who saw this or read this in the original audience, they'd just be like, wow, this is unbelievable. Deuteronomy 23, 17 through 18, notice it says, none of the daughters of Israel shall be a cult prostitute, nor shall any of the sons of Israel be a cult prostitute. Now notice verse 18. You shall not bring the hire of a harlot or the wages of a dog, that's, by the way, synonymous, into the house of the Lord your God for any votive offering. A votive offering is this peace offering. So in other words, not only is she rebelling against God because she wants to lie with someone who's not her husband and violate her marital laws, she wants to take the money, she's threatening at least, to use that money to give to God. That's the kind of sinfulness that... Solomon is showing us. And again, Solomon wants his son to have nothing to do with it. Have nothing to do with it. Be preserved on the outside. Have no, don't go out at night looking for that. Because at the end, it's going to destroy you physically here and now, but it'll ultimately destroy you forevermore in the lake of fire. And again, the focus in Proverbs is always on long life here and now. But it does branch out eventually into long life in the, in the uh, kingdom to come.
Okay, so with that, I, I, we didn't uh, make my goal and get all the way through this, but we will, and I appreciate all the, the great comments and questions, and uh, we'll get through the rest of it next week. But with that, let's just bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that we can be kept from the kingdom of darkness, that we've been delivered to the kingdom of the beloved Son through faith alone and Jesus Christ alone. And we do pray as we look at these words that we would live lives that are pleasing to you, not in rote, not in a vain way to earn, but rather out of gratitude for what you've done for us through your Son. We pray that we'd be that people, those who'd be content with what you've given in salvation in this life. And we pray, Heavenly Father, today for Bob as he preaches to us, that we would learn to be those who flee from idolatry, that we'd be those who are preserved on the outside of it, all by your means of grace, your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.